Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto, it's June 19th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. As the world's eyes have been fixed on Ukraine, another conflict on a different continent has seen more than a million people displaced from their homes. Fighting in Sudan has ripped families apart amid a mass migration among those looking to escape the bloodshed. New Zealander Phil Johnstone recently visited South Sudan as part of his work with World Vision. What he saw there has left an indelible mark on his mind. As World Refugee Day's efforts to remind us of the stories of those who have been displaced begin, Phil is here on the front page to share his experience of Sudan's crisis and explain what Kiwis can do to help those in need. Phil, can you explain why forces are fighting in Sudan at the moment? Sure. About uh, two months ago, the forces of two rival generals began fighting. So it's men with guns, isn't it? The typical story, and people want power. So that's had a huge impact on people in Khartoum and right through the country. What impact has this had on the citizens of the country? How many people have been forced to flee their homes and where are they going? Sure. The most recent stats I've seen are 1.5 million people are displaced within Sudan itself. So they're travelling light, they're looking for safety. About half a million people, in addition to that, have left the country. So refugees, returnees, gone to countries like Egypt, Chad, South Sudan... And, uh, you know, they've left with very little. So they're vulnerable. You can imagine the vulnerability of mothers and children at this time. Prices have spiked within the country, medicine, food and short supply. So it's just a really tough time. And it's not just the conflict. It's unlocked a wave of lawlessness and looting. So old rivalries have been settled. People are seeing an opportunity as well to take advantage. In my colleagues' words, and I quote, they say if this situation continues in Algenina, it will be worse than you can imagine. They say that it will be worse than the mass ethnic cleansings of past because there are multiple ways that you can die directly by a bullet, an untreated injury, or chronic disease, stuck in a burning house that you cannot leave. Even if you go out to get the water that you need to survive, you get killed. They are very emphatic that an urgent, and large-scale humanitarian intervention is what is needed to save what is left. For those who don't know, can you please explain the difference between Sudan and South Sudan? Sure. South Sudan won its independence from Sudan in 2011. It was a 21-year war of independence, and about 400,000 people died. So, huge. Since 2011, a couple of periods of conflict within South Sudan. So a difficult time. Some people were leaving the country to go into Sudan because of conflict and fighting. When I was there in South Sudan just last week, people were saying, look, we're actually on a track to a much happier place. We have a unity government. We have two leaders who are sharing power. And the Pope visited earlier this year. The whole world is trying to wrap their arms around South Sudan to encourage it to continue on this track towards peace and reconciliation and nationhood. So South Sudan is really an image of hope in an area that's faced a very, very difficult recent history. Absolutely, but it's also 
a place of huge worry as well. There's a lot of food insecurity. I think 49 million people, about a third of them, are living below the poverty line and need assistance. World Vision does have people on the ground in Sudan. Under what conditions have they been working and how much risk do those aid workers face while they're in the country? Oh, absolutely. Um, They just had to shelter in place like everyone else. Some would have moved, tried to move away from immediate violence and conflict. But, you know, I talked to a manager who had left the country just a few days before by chance and his team were there. And he was saying, you know, they're there. They're not. We can't pay them at the moment. They're just surviving. Yet they still want to be doing their jobs. They're running development projects, vital things to keep people alive. So they're torn. They've got this. I've got to be safe. But equally, I want to do my job. My name is Patrick Mogalula. I'm commonly known as Paddy here, and I'm the Zono Program Manager for World Vision in Apanai. Have you ever felt unsafe in the eight months that you have been here? I have, especially while out there in the field, maybe traveling along the River Nile from one location to another, and you're going through military checkpoints, and some held by government and others held by other groups. You recently visited the northwest of South Sudan. What did you see there and what are some of the stories that really stand out? Yeah, we visited a transit camp, several thousand people who just come over the border. People just waiting. It was the first time I'd seen a refugee or transit camp. Struck how quiet it was. Mm -hmm. There you had people sheltering under small trees. Very, very hot, 35 degrees, and people just trying to get out of the direct sun. They were getting one warm hot meal a day. Uh, World Vision had just done a distribution of a whole lot of non-food items, mats, mosquito nets, cooking utensils, water, containers, things like that. So they were waiting just for another week or two. The government and aid organisations were working really quickly on a more substantial refugee camp with big tents and water and sanitation facilities. So they were exhausted and they were hungry. I talked to a, a young boy called Ishmael, a teenager, 15. He said, I'm hungry. I'm not getting enough food. Typical teenager, I guess. Mm-hmm. Missing his friends. Just wants to get back to a school. He wants to be a doctor or a soldier, you know. It's quite different career paths there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you sort of hope he goes the medical line. Talked to a, a young boy, a, an orphan called Muhammad. He's 10. He was in the care of his uncle. He got separated from his uncle in Khartoum. And somehow made his way, you know, hundreds of miles with an elderly grandmother, a woman called Halima, 30, with a child, but she'd had to leave, she decided to leave, I think, two of her children on the other side of the border. She'd come across the South Sudan to see if she could build a life there, but she was distraught, you you could tell, and uh, the way she was speaking, she, you know, wants to go back and collect them. There was a woman called Sora, perhaps left the most impact on me, middle-aged lady, number of children. She saw her husband, who was a soldier, shot and killed. She made her way with the care from support from others. People gave him a little bit of money. She got a, a ride somewhere and then got another ride. She's left all her kids near the border, but in Sudan, and come to check. Those sort of face-to-face with a translator and comments and seeing people and looking at them, it does make an impact on you. It really brings it home. How angry are the people that have had to endure these hardships? I think they were just more tired and frustrated. Yeah, we talked to someone in Malakal at a a transit camp, a guy called Mario, and he was just saying, you know, we've been here, we want to move on. We want to, they were returnees. They had left in the last decade. Now they were coming back and they wanted to move back to the 
part of South Sudan they'd come from originally. So yeah, they were tired. Huh? Step by step. Yeah, he has experienced uh, all challenges uh, since some years back. There is a conflict in South Sudan everywhere and every time. So for him, it's not a shock because it's something that's happening. And if he not manage it well, it can cause problem for him. So he's trying to manage it step by step, slowly, slowly, so he can cope with the situation. If you're finding this episode of The Front Page interesting and informative, be sure to follow us on iHeartRadio or whichever podcast app you're using right now. Every listen helps us keep you up to date with the stories that matter. I think the thing that really hit me the most was going right to the border. We drove three and a half hours to the border with Sudan and spoke to a guy called Andrew, a protection monitor for World Vision, working there in partnership with a UN body called IOM, Migration Experts. And they were tabulating everyone who comes across the point. That information puts people on the pathway to support. And he was saying that about 60 kilometres on the other side of the border, there were a series of roadblocks put up by local militia, people with guns. So... People were coming either on foot or in little three-wheeled vehicles with a few possessions, and they were within touching distance of the border, yeah? Almost there. Almost taste it and smell it. So here's a, here's a checkpoint, and so give us some money. No money. Give us some possessions. What have you got? He had taken photos of a woman who was stabbed. There were stories of torture, some killings. So people get through that hurdle. They go another mile same thing happens again and there's five of these about a mile apart is so, this or- orchestrated and planned are these people working together these are or local these? people perhaps just bad people yeah who see an opportunity because everyone is struggling everyone is short of money everyone is uh, stressed out i guess those situations the worst of human nature comes to the fore so that just hit me in a way i'd never really thought about how vulnerable refugees are and the exploitation, taking the shirt off a refugee's back like that, uh, it's, yeah, it's gut-wrenching. How common is that type of extortion, violence and abuse amid this crisis? I think it is common. I think that's the unfortunate reality, and not just in this setting, uh, in all settings. You know, it's World Refugee Day. People will take stock of what life is like for refugees globally, and unfortunately, yeah, it's vulnerability. How much willingness has there been from other countries to take in some of the families who have been affected by this bloodshed? Yeah, I think uh, from what I've seen, I mean, Egypt has had a lot of people coming through. Chad is active, Central African Republic and um, South Sudan. Uh, at, in Malakal, up in the northeast, right near the border, we visited a camp with about 3,000 people and there was a big organisational tent there with people talking. There was a government minister with his sleeves rolled up living on site, making decisions, coordinating and planning. So they wanted to be able to take in these mostly returnees and within 15 days move them on, arrange transport trucks, put them on boats and barges on the Nile and get them off to back to their home region so they could resettle and, and start again. In the past year, we've seen so much emphasis placed on the war in Ukraine, but there seems to be far less interest from the West in what's happening in Sudan. You've been part of the humanitarian effort in both countries. 
Why do you think there is this divide? I think there is donor fatigue. I think Yemen, Sudan, other places in conflict across Africa and uh, Middle East, it's a seemingly ongoing story, isn't it? Whereas war for the first time in decades on continental Europe, it does really sharpen the imagination and has led to an unprecedented level of you know, spending of money and uh, the stakes are so high. So I think it's kind of understandable why Ukraine has dominated the headlines. Yemen is definitely one of the other forgotten wars, but there does seem to be hope of another truce being negotiated. Is there any hope of peace happening there? Well, I guess a war that's run for eight years with 10,000 children injured and 20 million people food insecure. The most recent things I've seen in the media are that there haven't been escalation of violence of late. And so a, a ceasefire that was put in place mid last year seems to be holding, which is obviously very good news. Even if peace was somehow declared in Ukraine, Yemen or Sudan in the near future, wouldn't the repercussions of such a massive humanitarian crisis take years to resolve? Absolutely. These are fragile environments, complex cultures, difficult histories. People have gone away and they come back and someone else has taken over their land. You know, you do have tribal communal issues and you have huge food insecurity. So you throw all those things together of course, these are massive challenges. So it needs everyone to dig deep. It means, you know, governments and global bodies, but people in countries like New Zealand can go on a website, you know, whether it's World Vision or whoever people want to support. You know, they can donate some money and it does make a real difference. Welcome on board this aircraft. Our mission today is to get you across to Malacca. And I know for some of you who are Phil, given the horrors that you've seen personally, what keeps you motivated? Why do you continue to do this job? Yeah, uh, I guess I have some skills in communication. Uh, I want to use those for good. I asked the same question of some colleagues last week. One said, look, it gives my life meaning. It, it is a calling. I get such satisfaction from seeing change on the ground. Someone else said the idea that people are suffering and I, I could do something about it and I don't. I couldn't live with myself like that. A comms colleague, Scovia, was a Ugandan child refugee herself. Spent the last two weeks with her in South Sudan. For her, it's hardwired into who she is. She was a child refugee and now she's in a role where she's able to help and tell their story and bring support for them. So for me, it's, yeah, it's a sense of meaning and purpose. Has this given you a better appreciation of the state of your life in comparison to what other people are going through around the world? Yeah, uh, I've done a few things over the last decade, work uh, in Nepal and Bangladesh, Ukraine and Romania last year. When I come back, I always tell my kids, enjoy your life here, but don't for a minute think that this is the common experience of most people on this planet you know most people do not live with all the freedoms and the joy and um, the environmental freedom and peace that we have times are tough here absolutely but most people on this planet are not living the kind of life we live thanks for joining us full that's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines. <laughs>